The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome my guest, Mr. Andy Cotton Sarjahani. He is an Austin, Texas-based filmmaker and the director-producer of the documentary film Downstream People. The film explores the social, economic, and environmental consequences of a corporately contracted industrial hog farm that was built inside the Buffalo National River watershed in the beautiful Ozark Mountains of Newton County, Arkansas. So this operation poses an enormous risk to the Buffalo National River. Downstream people sheds light on how it exploits not only the natural resources, but the people of rural Arkansas as well. Mr. Sarjahani grew up in Pope County, Arkansas, and is a University of Arkansas alumni. I know him because he is also a fellow registered dietitian. He holds a master's in sustainable agriculture and food systems from Montana State University, and he has authored and published multiple peer-reviewed journal articles related to sustainable food systems. So we are going to explore his focus on documentary filmmaking, which includes work on Keith Maitland's award-winning 2016 feature documentaries, Tower, and A Song for You, The Austin City Limits Story, and now Downstream People, which is his first film that he both directed and produced. Welcome, Andy. Thank you very much, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to know, how does a registered dietitian and a master in sustainable food system get into documentary filmmaking? Sure. I think the wheel started turning my first semester in graduate school at Montana State University. I read a short newspaper article about a dairy farmer in, I believe it was New Hampshire, that was a little dark, but he took a shotgun and blew the heads off of 200-plus of his dairy cows and then blew his own head off. And a lot of that, at least according to those who survived him, was a could be attributed to the stresses that he endured as a dairy farmer and the stresses from the, the kind of the strongholds of the dairy economics at the time. And so I remember at that time, I just remember thinking that an academic article can't really tell that story. And it sent me down a long path, and um, I finished my master's, and that kind of never left me. And I guess that's the shortest way I can tell it is that was the first time I really realized that there are other ways to to tell these stories related to bigger issues. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, I would rather watch a film and learn about a sustainable agriculture and a human interest story probably through a film than just about any other way because I think that in addition to the verbal storytelling, you've also got the beauty of having images to help lead us through and really drive an emotional core within us to make a difference. Yeah, I think so. I think that's absolutely right. I think me personally, I'm a visual learner, and I also think just human connection is incredibly important. And if anyone's ever read an academic journal article, they'll know that there's not much human human connection there. That's not to say there's not a place for for that, because there absolutely is, and um, we absolutely need that. But um, I think my 
inner calling, if you will, was called more towards telling these these stories than helping people understand some of these issues through in a visual way through film. Exactly. Photos. Yeah, you know it's interesting, Andy. I think that downstream people actually does connect very well to the mission of registered dietitians, at least those of us who work in the hunger and environmental nutrition world, because it brings forth stories of rural populations that are struggling economically and therefore with their food and how they are so easily exploitable. But let me ask you to tell the story of downstream people in a nutshell. Sure. So downstream people is a story of Newton County, Arkansas, which is, I believe it's the fifth poorest county in Arkansas, which, and you'll have to fact check me on this, but I believe Arkansas is, give or take, the third poorest state in the union. It's certainly in the top five. And so an industrial hog farm at the time, which was owned by Cargill, was put in to Newton County, Arkansas, which is the county right next to the county where I grew up. And it's 6,500 heads of hogs, which is in the big picture, not a huge CAFO, but it's in a very vulnerable region. For one, the biggest thing about it has been that it's next to the Buffalo National River watershed, which is our nation's first national river. And then it's also in a what's called a karst geology. And so that's essentially limestone that's porous. So I guess the best visual way I can describe for the listeners is just imagine Swiss cheese, and that's what's beneath the soil, just this porous, cavernous, underground aquifer system that if any manure or excessive contaminants leak through that soil, they're going to almost inevitably get into the watershed. And so that's uh, downstream people, um, which Arkansas actually means downstream people in Quapaw, is the story of the people who are surrounded and dealing with this hog CAFO and and kind of the inner conflicts in in a poor rural county in in the Ozarks and that needs money and needs work. And also county, I think another very important thing to say is that it's a very proud culture and people don't want to speak out against each other because they kind of, they sit next to each other in these church pews. So it's kind of a a few people put in this hog farm and they employ, I think, five or six people that are their family members, and then the rest of the county is kind of subjected to the smell and the risk of their water supply being contaminated. And so I think that's the, that's probably the most concise way. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think let's let our listeners know that CAFO, I've heard it stands for both confined or concentrated animal feeding operations. So this is not your pastured hog farm. This is where hogs are concentrated in one area, and it's my understanding that it's inevitable that there will be spillage of the manure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is what CAFO means, and that is, I think, the biggest concern here. We've seen it happen in North Carolina and other states. In this particular instance, yes, it's kind of there is a line in the film that says, you know, it's not a question of if it'll happen, but it's when it will happen. And so there's a whole lot of controversy around it, and there's a lot of question as to why the Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality, who refused to speak to, to us for the film, allowed this to go through. It was a very best way, nicest way I can say it, it was a unique um, permit process that hadn't been done before to allow this farm in, hmm. and uh, or CAFO in, I should say. And... Yeah, it's kind of a, a lot of people in 
view this as a ticking time bomb, including a hydrogeologist with the University of Arkansas, Dr. Van Brahana, who has been largely outspoken against the farm, but to no avail. Well, I do feel like there's promise in that people who made wrong decisions in Flint, Michigan, in terms of contaminating our most critical nutrient, are going to face legal consequences. And I hope that anyone involved in polluting our water and our beautiful scenic waterways will also be forced to pay. You know, the polluters need to pay for, in my opinion, for the common damage that will undoubtedly result from this operation. Yeah, of course. I mean, absolutely. I think that the the, the biggest issue here is that, you know, Cargill really takes on no risk. And also, just to clarify for listeners, it's no longer owned by Cargill. Cargill, Cargill's pork division was sold to JBS Pork, which is a Brazilian-based company. So there's also a line in the film that kind of sums up the situation as well. It's in a, like the most concise summary of the situation, which is the money goes to Cargill, the pork goes to China, and the pig shit stays here. Exactly. Um, so that's no one in Newton County is really benefiting from this other than taking on a lot of the risk, and I'm happy to get into some of that a little bit later, but yeah. Yeah, let's do. How were the people in Newton County sold on this operation? So that's a great question, Melinda. I'm glad you asked that. They were sold primarily for two reasons. One, that it would provide jobs, and two, that it would provide tax revenue. So let's look at both of those. In terms of jobs, I believe it provided five or six as of, you know, the making of the film. Now, the, the film was finished last year, so that they could have upped their employing their employment, but I, I doubt that it's significant. And they, so I believe they provide five or six jobs. Don't know how much those positions are being paid. From what I gather, they're just kind of standard labor positions. So we're looking at 12 to $15 an hour, most likely. That's, I don't have proof of that. I, don't, I can't guarantee that, but I think that's the general going rate in that area. And they are family members of the three men who are partners in the farm. The other is the property tax or the tax revenue, and they, they were told that they would be able to receive, I think it, that there's a quote in a newspaper from one of the justice of the, of the peace in that area, who is also related to the farmers, I think that's important to note, um, and he had pushed for this CAFO to be allowed because it would generate, I believe it was quoted, there's a newspaper article out there, and I don't have it with me, but it's between sixty and $80,000 annually. Well, we went to the the Newton County Courthouse and found out that in, at the time when we were filming, this farm had generated, I think in the previous year, I believe it was eleven or $12,000 in tax revenue. So it definitely wasn't holding up to that end of the claim. And so those that's kind of the two things that folks were sold on financially and economically. I think the other thing, too, which is important to note, and this is exploring the film a little bit more, is that a lot of these folks have resentment towards the National Park Service and the federal government because they're fourth and fifth generation Newton County, and so their land was taken from them in 1972 when the Buffalo became a national river. So we got the vibe making the film that there was at least a handful of people, not completely, a handful of people who kind of saw this as a way to stick it to the federal government, if you will, even if it was at their own expense. Right. Um, yeah, I can see fascinating that. Fascinating in another film in and of itself. Exactly. But, um, 
What's so interesting that's, to uh, me, if I might just add in there my question about, you know, that the whole tax revenue piece, doesn't having a national scenic waterway also create jobs and bring money into the county? Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up as well. The Buffalo National River, people come from all over to float that river, and I think it's uh, it generates, you know, Melinda, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head. It's quoted in the film. I want to say it's $38 million a year, but I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to stick to that. So. Sure. Several million a year in tourism. If you go to Newton County in Jasper, Arkansas, or any of these other, a lot of other areas in Newton County, a lot of people make money, uh, have adapted and learned how to make money off canoe rentals, bed and breakfast, hiring restaurants that cater to the tourists coming in. And so yes, the Buffalo River does generate a significant amount of money, and that's was a big part of the argument as well, is that you're going to you know, kind of ruin this other economic industry for the sake of a handful of jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, I can speak from experience that the Ozark foothills and the Ozark scenic waterways are some of the most beautiful in the country. We're talking about spring-fed, clear blue rivers that are nice and cold in hot summer days where you can take your family Introduce them to nature and the beauty and joy of being out connected to to nature and how beneficial that is to our public health. And to lose that, not to mention the quality of water coming from a person's tap, would be such a crime. What amazes me is that this kind of operation would even be allowed on a national scenic waterway. Yeah, and that's what baffled a lot of people. There's a lot of confusion over how that happened. And also, it's no one really knows because there hasn't been a full investigation into that. Their governor, Mike Beebe, who was the governor at the time, is quoted on film, and that's actually what our film opens with, is saying he takes responsibility for it, and that's the black mark on his record. He wished the hog farm was never there. This is the governor of Arkansas, who it went in under his watch, is quoted saying on a video, he wishes the hog farm were never there. So in terms of how it got in, that's there was a questionable permit process with the Arkansas Department of Environmental Quality, who again refused to speak to us on camera. And it was also a permit process that had never been done before. It was a special permit. And that was what allowed this farm to go in. We can only speculate as to why that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it would be interesting for an investigative reporter to dig a little bit deeper and find out who benefited financially. And since the governor took responsibility for this, I would be very curious to know that. But let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Andy Sarjahani, an Austin, Texas-based filmmaker. He is the director and producer of the documentary film Downstream People, which explores the social, economic, and environmental consequences of a corporately contracted industrial hog farm that was built inside the Buffalo National River watershed in the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas. Well, tell me, Andy, you've shown this film 
at several festivals, most notably right in the backyard at the annual Ozarks Foothills Film Fest. What was the response? I think most people have been pretty appalled with the fact that the CAFO is there. I think that there is generally, um, as is with everyone, the just the confusion as to how a hog CAFO this size was allowed into the Buffalo National River watershed and into such an area. That's kind of been the general response from most folks. And most people aren't pleased with the, with the situation. I will say this. I think that the one take home, like one thing I just really, like I haven't been able to be at all the screenings. And one thing that I've emphasized at screenings is that, well, this is the obvious offense here. It would be, you know, to the National River. And that's kind of been what's made most of the headlines. What inspired me to make the film more so and, and share more so than anything is the fact that it's also an environmental injustice to a vulnerable population. So I really don't want that to get lost in the conversation because I think that these are, it's a lower income population that's behind the sticks. No one thinks about Newton County, Arkansas. I can almost bet that. And this happens a lot in a lot of places throughout our country. And so that's, that would be the take home I would hope for people is that, you know, this is, you know, these people, even if they want to fight back, Melinda, they really, they either choose not to because they are so desperate for jobs and they think that maybe they might get a piece of it. They might land one of those ten, twelve, fifteen dollar an hour jobs if they just hung on. Or maybe the next hog capo will come in and they'll get a ten, twelve dollar, fifteen hour job. Or they're also afraid to speak out because it's a small community and everyone knows everyone and there are people that had spoken out against the farm did receive I wouldn't say threats, but definite intimidation from the farmers themselves and their spouses, you know, and things like church. You know, these are things that most people don't think about because most people don't live in a community like this, and it's hard to relate. But there was a woman who was in her late 80s that spoke out against it in a short video for a nonprofit that was aimed at protecting the buffalo and that community. And this woman was confronted at church the following week by the wife of one of the farmers, and a, a woman in her late 80s who lived next door to the hog cave and has to breathe it in every day, was confronted by a, a much younger woman at, at church of all places. So these are the kinds of things that the, the folks deal with in those communities that most people, it seems so foreign, I recognize, probably to most listeners and most people who see the film, but these are the realities of the situation. And that is the beauty and importance of this film, is to help us understand how our human relations are so important and really used against us, I think, by corporate entities who see profit over public welfare. That's why I think that this kind of work that you're doing now fits so well with the mission and ethical basis of our profession to protect public health. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about one of the people featured in your film because I thought she was a real standout in terms of describing these kinds of communication issues, and her name is Lisa Pruitt. She's a professor of law at the University of Southern California, and she is a sixth-generation Newton County resident, and she flew back to Arkansas to meet with you, devoting her energy to that film. 
What made her presence in that film so critical to the film's success, do you think? Oh, sure. That's why, Well, first of all, I can't say enough good things about Lisa. She is incredible, a brilliant woman, and just an amazing human being in general, as is her mom, who does not appear in the film. But Lisa is, was honestly like the perfect character in so many ways. She is, as you said, a sixth-generation Newton County girl who is now a professor of law at UC Davis and writes academically about environmental injustice now. So I, I couldn't think of a more perfect person to put in the film. Lisa is very articulate, but she also understands Lisa is not beyond growing up in the hills of the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does live her life in the ivory towers of academia now as an, an attorney and professor, but she understands what it's like to be in those communities. And Lisa has written extensively about these issues academically, and I don't know if these are available publicly or not, but I would definitely encourage you know users who want follow-up to look into Lisa's work and her blog. Yes, and, I visited her website, uh, and her blog okay, and great. her writings are indeed available, and I will make that link available to our listeners, as well as the link on Vimeo to your terrific film. Awesome, yeah. Lisa was incredible, so I'm glad you brought her up. And she articulates the struggle in ways that just were were perfect. One of the quotes she has in the film, Melinda, is, a wrong to the river, a wrong to the watershed is also a wrong to the people who live in the watershed. And I love that, that she said that. That was, I think that that embodies so much of what this film is about. And it also embodies a lot of what one of my favorite writers and thinkers Wendell Berry writes about is that we're not separate from nature. We are viewing nature and wilderness as a separate entity is a dangerous thing because we are part of it just as much. So to view, you know, the Buffalo River wilderness as the separate entity is reductionist, I think, in the sense that there are people who live in that wilderness and all around it. So to think that, oh, it's only important to protect this wilderness is in my opinion, short-sighted and reductionist, because there are people, my people, that grew up right up the road from me who live there, and they're affected by this just as much as the National River. And I think that that's really important to understand. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you pulled that quote out, because I wrote it down in my notes, too. It certainly bubbled up to the top. <laughs> a wrong to the river and a wrong to the watershed is a wrong to the people. And we see this all over the country, and yet the story and the methods seem to be the same, as you mentioned, about environmental injustice and how low-income individuals who really are living a very desperate life are more vulnerable and susceptible. And it's almost like industrial profit folks move in, and they see that vulnerability, and they take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's along the lines of how it works. They either can't fight back or they won't because they just are afraid to or need the jobs. Right. This is a big part of what happens. And what I thought, too, was interesting in the film was this division that developed, this communication breakdown, and this division of people who saw the river as a source of value and those who sided with the industry. And I was really curious to understand more the methods by which 
that break was made in communication. And I, I know it, it's explored in the film, the fear of being harmed. I think somebody had mentioned that people were burned out, like their, their homes were burned as a result of speaking out against industrial intrusion. That's a fear that most of us don't think about. Yeah, that's exactly right. Definitely not. It's in 2017. It's not. You know, most people, probably most of your listeners and folks who watch the film will have experienced at all. In terms of the communication breakdown, Melinda, that's a wonderful question and one that I still am fascinated by. I would hope I applied for a few grants to turn the film into a feature, and unfortunately, they didn't pan out. But that's one of the issues I really want to explore. In terms of my perception of it, there's kind of what's called the from here's and the come here's in, in Newton County. And so the from here's are people who are four, five, six generations deep, right? Their families have never left. They've kind of stayed there. It's similar to the Appalachian culture. You just stay there and work the land. They view that land as theirs, and they view they're averse to federal oversight of any way, shape, or form. And one could argue that they have their reasoning. You know, they could, their reasoning is well-based in the sense that a lot of their land was taken with the National River in 1972. And then they sort of view the land more as utilitarian, um, not really as this, you know, special place, if you will. And then there are the, the come-heres, which are uh, people who have been there first generation, but they've also been there three or four decades, which is quite a while. Uh, the kind of back to the landers from the 60s and 70s who moved from other parts of the country and settled in the Ozarks because they loved the beauty, land is affordable, and they wanted to really cultivate a kind of a back-to-the-land lifestyle. And they stayed in, in open businesses like bed and breakfasts and canoe rentals and farms. And they do a wonderful job, and most people are in the film. And honestly, it's just a paradigm difference. That's how, I mean, two very different cultures. Just, I mean, it's just as different as someone from, I don't know, New York City going to Birmingham, Alabama, you know, or Bessemer, Alabama, for that matter. Just a very different way of looking at the world. And that's kind of just how it's been. I mean, they, they, they choose to look at the one group as viewed it, you know, more as a collaborative effort and the other its view group has viewed it more as a utilitarian effort and honestly the thing that maybe resonates is because it is such a religious population there it's almost like the I think there are two kind of factors of Christians in the world that you know they've kind of interpreted the Bible as like a the earth is more their humans are you know have dominion over the, the earth and right. that's kind of how I I seem to perceive the, at least my perception, and maybe folks will, that watch the film will see it. Folks that are the from here's that view the land as utilitarian, they, I, I kind of gathered that they just see themselves as having dominion over it. Whereas the come here's kind of view it more as, you know, just being shepherds and stewards of the land. I was just going to say, and I think that that's the general, I guess it just comes down to a very stark divide in paradigms and culture. Yeah. Well, Andy, we'll have to leave it at that. I will provide a link to this incredible film. I would hope that this film provides a wonderful opportunity for people to be introduced to this part of the country and to use this as a teaching vehicle to help us communicate better with each other 
bring two sides of the aisle together, so to speak. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank Andy Sarjahani, Austin, Texas-based filmmaker, fellow registered dietitian, and director and producer of the documentary film Downstream People. Andy, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me today, Melinda. It's been a real pleasure.